From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. So far on Radio Advisory, we focused on the impact COVID-19 is having on the healthcare landscape right here in the United States. But of course, we're talking about a pandemic. So today I want to address the global impact of COVID-19 and start to unpack how other countries are responding to the crisis. And to have that conversation, I've brought my colleague and leader for international research at Advisory Board, Rebecca Richmond. Hey, Rebecca. Hi there, Ray. If, if, uh, if I can call you Ray, I think I need to ask you to call me Beck, since only my mom calls me Rebecca when I'm in trouble. But I'm really pleased to be here today, so thank you. Well, it is good to know that I am not the only person at Advisory Board who exclusively goes by their nickname. Where are you calling into the podcast from? Uh, so I'm in London right now, where our international office is based, but I'm obviously working from home right now because we're in lockdown in this country. Same, and probably going to be that way for the foreseeable future. I think that is very true, unfortunately. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. I'm hoping that you can tell me not just about how other countries have responded to COVID, but also what the U.S. can learn from their response right now and, of course, as we prepare for future waves. Do some level setting with me. What countries should we be looking at for inspiration? Well, that's a pretty difficult question to answer. We work with about 40 plus different countries at Advisory Board International, and I think it's probably true to say that no one country has the definitive answer. It's interesting. The media would have you think that New Zealand is taking the right approach or Sweden has the answer, but the reality is probably much more complicated. I certainly think New Zealand is a country that's worth looking at in terms of the brilliant communication strategy from a public health perspective um, and across the health and social care community that they've adopted. But then I'd also point towards Singapore and a couple of other countries that have been using technology really effectively. So there's kind of a, a melange, if you like, of best practice that we've been pulling together to share with our members as they try to build the ultimate response to the pandemic. We've actually produced an analysis of how nine countries, including the US, have been responding to certain key elements of what we see as the critical response to the pandemic. And we are going to be updating that on a biweekly, weekly basis, depending on how things change in terms of policy and um, how acute systems are working in terms of standing back up their elective surgery, for example, and lots of other critical elements of the response. So um, I know that we're able to share that with different organizations and certainly happy to do that after today's session as well. Yeah, we'll make sure to include that in our show notes. So it makes sense that there isn't a single exemplar. And I'm hoping that every country can learn from each other as the whole world braces for a second wave. When you look at countries or economies as a whole, why have some done better than others? Honestly, I think the two things that matter here are probably time and history. So economies that have done well had the time to prepare for an outbreak. Um, it can't be stressed enough that obviously the response time of any jurisdiction greatly affects the kind of measures that they're able to put in place. But I think the countries, the systems that we've seen do best were those that very early on, late February, early March, realized that this had the potential to become something huge and terrifying, quite frankly. And so they started to stand up um, providers across the system of health and social care to think about leveraging technology, 
most important of all to start thinking about the implementation of something around track and trace as people were coming into and leaving the country. And so as you look for patterns, it's unquestionably true that that sort of shutdown of transmission was a fundamental part of it. I think, you know, hindsight, 2020 hindsight is an exquisite thing, but I can think of several countries, including mine right now, to be honest with you, that are paying the price for slow responses by government to prevent the transmission of the disease. So it's that real lockdown on transmission that I think has been critical and using the recovery time to create a kind of circuit breaker, I suppose, to really make sure that they can lock down on what they need to do quickly to flip a switch if there is a second wave coming through. Hmm. I like that image of a circuit breaker and being ready to flip immediately upon seeing signs of a second wave. Tell me what goes into a circuit breaker-like plan. So there's a lot that's happening around predictive modeling. I think some of the countries that we've seen that have really been able to get something in place quickly have been able to take that data and use it to look a week, two weeks out to really start to understand what is it that we can see that triggers a kind of wave in demand? What are the critical factors that we're seeing that have been underpinning the pandemic. And then on the back end of that, and I know this sounds incredibly obvious, but I don't see this enough in some places, is having a systematic response strategy for that data. So I've come across a number of systems and countries that are very proud of their ability to find that data and build predictive models. The challenge is on the back end, they haven't done so much to put in place the protocols and pathways so that people actually know what to do with that data. So whether that's recalibrating emergency department capacity, staff flexibility and deployment, PPE policies, those kinds of things. So I almost think about it as a one-two punch. Yes, you've got to have a really good, robust data set. But actually, more importantly, almost to me, you've got to have a means of letting people know what they need to do differently when the red flare goes up. And you mentioned that there was a second factor in how well countries responded to COVID-19, and that was history. Tell me what you mean by that. I think countries that had had experience with diseases like SARS and H1N1 had already put up, built up their protocols and procedures. So it probably becomes a little bit easier for them to flip that switch. There are so many unknowns in response to this particular pandemic that I can't say that the response has been perfect. But I do think, again, if I come back to that early track and tracing, controlling borders, controlling movement across geography, responses built around that kind of approach that I think was learned from things like SARS has been a significant benefit to those particular systems, I would say. And those systems probably also had processes in place to allow leaders to make the immediate call to flip the switch. One thing that's challenging when we look at the global impact of the pandemic is that it's at different stages in different parts of the world. But in general, we're approaching this movement of a recovery period. As you're talking to leaders around the globe, what are some of the things that you are hearing they do as they approach recovery? I will say as well, it's surprising and a little bit disappointing how much time people are spending figuring out whether they're allowed to call it a recovery period. I've come across some systems that want it to be referred to as a restoration period because they're concerned that recovery has too many negative implications. That's a good word. I'm going to steal that. We also have moved away from calling it a post-COVID period because, of course, it's not. I've heard some people call it peri-COVID. Have you heard anything like that? 
I think that might be a bit too classy for me, Ray, to be honest <laughs> with you, but I, that maybe I'll take that one away. I, I, I definitely think one of the things that has been most interesting, I mean, whether I'm talking to people in Australia and New Zealand where they stood up a really robust response that ultimately, thank goodness, they haven't really had to implement yet, or some of our member systems in London, where they're obviously really under the cosh right now. What has been interesting is this sense of needing to have their eyes pointing in different directions. So part of them knows they have to get the rest of their strategy back on on track. And there are other elements of um, operating their business in inverted commas that they can no longer afford to ignore while they were so focused on the pandemic. But the reality is, I think everybody is very concerned about the potential of wave two. And so their other eye is still sort of trained on what might be coming down the pipe. And so it it is actually interesting, wherever they have found themselves on that curve, I think there have been some common things that I've been spending most of my time talking to leaders about. So one of them is, you know, revisiting their strategy. So someone was talking to me literally last week saying that, they had built a five-year plan. And in that five-year plan, there was a three-year work stream to implement telehealth capabilities. Well, they've implemented it in the last three weeks. And so they've actually, and actually it's a positive outcome, I suppose, in a funny way. They're going back and going through their strategic plan to understand what all the things that we thought would take a real long-term push that they've been able to implement to transform the system in a matter of weeks. The challenge is how are they going to audit all of those innovations that have come about organically or just because they've had to happen and figure out what are the ones that really will make a sustainable difference? What are the ones that are transformative? How will they invest in them longer term and those kinds of things? So we've been spending a lot of time doing webinars, for example, on how do you lock in crisis driven innovation and how do you assess that? You know, I'm actually hearing the same thing from leaders in the U.S., the things that were on their strategic plan in January or in January of 2019 are all out the window. You mentioned telehealth is perhaps one of the pieces of innovation that folks are focusing on now, and that's true in the U.S. as well. What other types of innovation or what other things have risen to the top of the strategic plan at the organizations you work with? I think a doubling down on population health management. So the idea of multidisciplinary working, as we have had to deflect, for want of a better word, patients away from the acute care system, where else can they go? What has that meant for building out relationships with primary care, community care, maybe third sector charity organisations? So that notion of really bringing partnerships into stark relief and thinking about integrated care systems is something that I know has been in place for a long time in the US, certainly in the UK, it's something that's been um, pushed hard on for the last two or three years. But I think that notion of multidisciplinary system-wide thinking and working has been a critical part of this. I'm curious, is there anything that is not on their strategic plan or not on their radar, perhaps, that we would find a little bit surprising? So I think one of the things that has been dialed down a little bit in a lot of the conversations that I've been having has been a concern about budgetary constraints. So to go back to that point I just made about multidisciplinary working, when we've been talking to systems over the last couple of years, we've been really advocating for trying to rethink funding models so that people can work across partners to make sure they can provide whole system support for individuals out there. And I do think that one of the things that the pandemic has brought to the fore is this desire to be a little bit less risk averse, a bit less worried about contracts and instead think about compacts and how we are going to work together, how we have to work together 
to deliver against the common goals of the system, which is always to deliver the best care possible, right place, right time, all of that good stuff. But the reality is, of course, that I think there will be budgetary consequences later on down the track. And I think a lot of the systems that I'm talking to are starting to realise that they are going to have to put in place some kind of measurement capability to demonstrate why going off track in a budgetary way was acceptable and whether there are things they can learn to make the case for that budgetary flexibility to stay, because I think that would be a huge outcome from all of this. And that's, of course, potentially a problem because in a lot of these countries, the payer is actually the government. Exactly. We are starting to see a few systems in England, for example, do some really brave work where they're saying, you know what, we will start to get into shared risk setups to make sure that we can defend these decisions to the payers, but also make sure that we can create some degree of fluidity or flexibility into the system. So I think about some of the case studies we've got from systems like Dorset, Taunton and Somerset, Coventry, um, a couple of systems in Wales who've done some really powerful work to make sure that everything is citizen or patient-centred and that the money kind of follows that activity. But ultimately, yeah, I think the system has to change at the payer level as much as it does at provider level. And hopefully some of the work that's happened in the pandemic in places like Haldar in Wales will enable us to, to fight that good fight. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Hi, I'm Chris with the radio advisory team. On behalf of everyone at advisory board, thank you for everything you're doing to battle COVID-19. We want to help you celebrate the bright spots. Perhaps you've been amazed at how your teams, your peers, or your leaders are supporting you. Or perhaps a patient's words reminded you of why you do what you do. What bright spots are you seeing? We want to hear from you. Share your story at advisory.com slash thank you and view our message of thanks. So Beck, I want to ask you about a question that's been in the media quite a bit, and that's about contact tracing. There are a lot of us that are looking to other countries who've succeeded with contact tracing. But in an honest moment, it is a pretty big cultural lift here in the United States. What are you hearing from leaders across the globe? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, a lot of people are very interested in what's been happening in places like Hong Kong and South Korea. But the reality is that, to your point, the culture there is quite different. And so there is a lot of concern in some of the other countries that I work with about what that means in terms of data privacy um, freedom of information sharing. It's unfortunate, but true as well, that some a lot of the work that happens around contact tracing could, I could argue, is a little bit outside of the control of a healthcare executive. The decision is being made at a government level. So in England, for example, there's been a significant delay on rolling that out because the government has wanted to build their own system. There's a lot of reticence to engage with that system because nobody really understands what's going to be done with the data. Um, and then there are lots of arguments here at the moment about organizations like Google and Apple that are building a slightly less invasive app, but is that right for this country? So I think the culture piece is a huge part of that discussion. And I'm not sure that sits as much as I would like within the control of the health and social care system leaders. Beck, one of the big changes that we're seeing in the US is leaders' approach to staffing and the necessary adaptations they've needed to make to the workforce to both be able to handle surges, 
but also, frankly, to weather the financial storm. What does the workforce approach look like from an international perspective? It's been an interesting one for us to watch. I think one of the things that almost every system that I work with, I think about Norway, Finland, Denmark, certainly in the UK and then over in Australia and New Zealand, is that people are starting to realise that perhaps the future is a slightly less siloed workforce. So as people have had to um, bring in physicians, nurses from other parts of the system to work in their critical care unit, for example, or as they've had to bring in more people with behavioural health expertise to work with primary care providers to manage those kinds of, of challenges for some of the citizens that they're supporting. This notion of more fluidity and flex around workforce, should an FTE belong in inverted commas to a hospital or do they belong to the system where a kind of virtual credentialing passport would allow you to work a certain number of hours a week in different sites at different levels of care. They're the kind of debates that are happening right now. In the UK, that model is being piloted. It's something that I've certainly heard a lot from some of the CNOs that I work with in New Zealand who feel like for the first time, um, some of their nursing team are being freed up to really get involved in things like dispensing um, writing full-blown prescriptions. Some things I think that perhaps have happened for a lot longer in the US, but criteria-led discharge and those kinds of things. Who plays what role and who gets to make those kinds of decisions is really up for debate right now. And I welcome that. Hmm. And how about the response to dealing with some of the burnout and trauma that some of these care teams are going to be facing, particularly in a world where they're more flexible in their role than ever before? Really important. I think when I think to some of the most popular webinars that I've been running for our international members over the last few weeks, and actually we've had a significant attendance from US organizations as well, which I think speaks to how important this is. We've really honed in on this idea of how do you communicate effectively? How do you make sure that when you've got people working in different sites across the system of care, dealing with so much misinformation um, and sort of casual comments, how do you establish a formal sort of single source of truth for people with a regular cadence so they know where to tap into for the information they need? And then also, how do you pull together a multi-strand support package, I guess, for your staff? So everybody will want support in different ways. Unfortunately, I know a number of people who work in healthcare sometimes feel like asking for help is a sign of weakness. And I think stressing as an executive group, that it's not, and that your system has multiple ways that people can tap in to get physical and mental respite and support as carers themselves is a really critical part of what needs to happen right now. And again, we actually ran a webinar on exactly that last week, which I hope some people might be able to access um, as a recording on the advisory board website. Yeah, we can definitely add that to our show notes. Well, Beck, I want to thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory from all the way across the pond. One final question for you. What piece of advice would you give to leaders across the globe as they're thinking about what to focus on right now? I think I would say three things. The first one, to come back to the point I made earlier around the idea of a single source of truth, is to really establish truly a single source of truth communication strategy one figurehead, one email account, 
one text number that people know they will be able to turn to for the information that they need and setting in place a cadence so that they come to expect that information arriving at a certain time. I think that that idea of the discipline of a single source of truth at a time when social media and gossip um, you know, multidisciplinary teams tap into so many information resources, that's critical. Secondly, getting managers the support that they need. So when I think about frontline and middle managers, they're kind of getting it from both directions. So their senior executive team is pushing a bunch of stuff down to them that they want them to spread across the system. Their frontline staff are expressing concerns, questions, frustrations back up at them. If they fall down, the system collapses. And I definitely talk to people who worry that there is too much middle management. That might be true. But right now, we have to make sure that we're shoring them up as kind of the bridge in the system. And then the last one, to come back to that point about revisiting strategy, I think as we do that, we have to go into those assessments with trade-off as the key word. It's a lot easier to think about the things that you should start doing than it is to decide what you should stop doing. But I think a stop audit to figure out what we can trade off in favour of some of the new priorities that we're going to have will be critical because very few systems can cope with more without relieving the pressure somewhere at the same time. I love it. You are only the second person who's come on the podcast who's cheated in the final question and given more than one answer, but I will let it slide. Thank you. (laughs) You're very kind. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Beck. My pleasure. Stay safe. Every country and every economy has taken at least a slightly different approach to responding to the COVID-19 crisis. But rather than seek out a single exemplar to follow, every country can learn from each other's approach. And that's going to be even more important as the world braces for additional waves in the future. And remember, wherever you're listening from, we're here to help. I did have some delicious tuna salad for my lunch, which was exquisite, whilst watching my neighbour's cats kick the crap out of each other in our back garden, which was also delightful.